Hello, and welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. I'm your host and comrade, Rob. Today, we're going to be talking about the Detroit riots. Um, I'm going <clears> to <throat> briefly discuss the 1943 riot, uh, but primarily this piece is about the 1967 riots. Um, it's important to make the distinction between the two, and that's why I'm going to talk about the 1943 a little bit first. But as a decent little intro here, I do have a video. Summer of 1967, which saw urban riots in many large cities, including New York, Newark, New Jersey, and Detroit. It is Detroit's violence, however, that is the subject of a new film. Michelle Miller takes us back. Be mindful this story has some language that some may find offensive. In a hundred places, Detroit is afire. One hundred square blocks are now under siege. And as you walk through the area, people shout from their homes, watch out for the snipers. It began early one Sunday morning in late July. Police raided an unlicensed bar in a black neighborhood in Detroit. A crowd gathered, tempers flared. This is going to happen all over America. It's going to be a hot world, not a hot summer. It's a hot world. A rock was thrown, and the city became a war zone. 700 rounds squeezed off. Now all of a sudden it's silent, tense quiet, everybody looking around. The fires burned for five days. You were patrolling the streets yes. of Detroit yes. in the midst of all of this mayhem. It was unbelievable mayhem. In 1967, Ike McKinnon was one of only 100 black police officers on a force of 5,500 in Detroit. I said, my God, this is happening to my city. The fire has been raging for more than 30 minutes. The people have been evacuated, and yet the firemen are unable to respond. You call this a rebellion, not a riot. Why do you call it? A rebellion. In Detroit, it was clear uh, leading up to it and even during it that people were pretty consistent about why they were angry. Pulitzer Prize winning historian Heather Thompson. Black Detroiters in particular were routinely singled out for abuse, for excessive profiling, arrests, really an overall criminalization of black Detroiters that white Detroiters simply didn't experience. Policing was used to, you know, keep white neighborhoods white. Growing up, Ike McKinnon had seen many young black men singled out for abuse at the hands of the police. He was one of them. I was 14 years old and I uh, was beaten up by um, uh, four police officers. They grabbed me, the name calling, they, they proceeded to beat me up. Was this standard operating procedure? This was SOP for these guys. That evening, I made a decision. I was going to become a Detroit police officer, but I wanted to make sure that those kinds of things didn't happen to me or to other people. But driving home in 1967 after a long night patrolling Detroit's burning streets, McKinnon's badge and blue uniform offered no protection. Two white officers pulled me over with their guns drawn. And I said, police officer, and smiling as I am, I said, police officer. I had my badge. I stepped out of the car. The older officer with his gun drawn, he said, tonight you're going to die, nigger. This is a cop. This is a police officer. Telling police another officer. police officer. Yes. I'm going to kill you. That's right. He's tonight you're going to die, nigger. I see his finger pulling the trigger. And as I dove back into my car, he started shooting at me. 
I hit the uh, accelerator with my right hand, the, the uh, steering wheel with my left hand, and I drove off as he was shooting at me. What did that tell you? If a person is of that mindset to me, a fellow officer, what the hell is he going to do to the rest of the people in our city? 43 people died during those five days in Detroit. More than 1,000 were injured, 2,000 buildings destroyed, some 400 families left homeless. The Webb family came back to what was their home on Harrison Street to salvage what did not burn and try to find a reason for last night's destruction. Three teenagers, Carl Cooper, Aubrey Pollard, and Fred Temple were among those who died, shot to death after police raided the Algiers Motel, searching for snipers. These boys were simply caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's a bunch of police outside right now. What happened that night is the subject of a new film by Academy Award-winning director Catherine Bigelow. It's called Detroit. Chats fire, chats fire, near the Algiers Motel. I'd never heard of the Algiers Motel. What happened there, had you? No, I'd heard of the Detroit riots, but not the Algiers Motel, not this true crime story at the heart of it. Now let's not be stupid in this situation. Seven black men and two white women were severely beaten, but survived. Their stories tell a tale of brutalization and terror. Spending as much time as you can with eyewitness accounts was probably the single most critical element that grounded this piece. You need to tell me where the gun is. Understanding what it would be like to be in that hallway. I need you to survive the night. John Boyega plays Melvin Dismukes, a black security guard who was also at the Algiers that night. Fella here had a knife try to go for my gun. In the case of Dismukes, caught between two worlds, the world of law enforcement and the world of the victim. A revolver. Do you carry a revolver? I do have a 38. You ever shoot me one? No. Do you think about those young men? I think about it constantly. Dismukes still works as a security guard. To this day, some have not forgiven him for being the face of the law that night. I had to move out of the city because of the threats against me. It's just it's rough. There were threats against you from yes, yeah. both sides. I wouldn't, no, I said usually just from one side. Yeah. Which was? The black community. Dismukes was tried for assault in 1968. He was acquitted by an all-white jury. I saw him as a survivor, and yet at the same time, somebody who was deeply wounded by the event. You could see that it broke him in an irrevocable way. Melvin, you want to go home? None of the three white police officers at the Algiers that night were convicted of any wrongdoing. How much do you want the audience to see the collateral damage? These broken men, broken spirits. And broken dialogue, you know, between two very disparate cultures that need to embrace one another. It's naive, perhaps, to say, to think that that's possible, but I, I have to. 50 years later, the Detroit neighborhoods where the riots raged have still not recovered, though many parts of the city are turning around. Ike McKinnon rose through the ranks to become chief of police in 1994 and served as deputy mayor of Detroit until last year. Where the Algiers Motel once stood, there is now an open field. No plaque marks what happened here. Some say riots, some say rebellion. Some there say will riot. be a marker near the spot where the riot broke out and a newly rebuilt park. The people have to connect to their history and understand where we've been. 
For community activist Marlo Studemeyer, coming to terms with what took place here 50 years ago is the only way for the city to heal. If we're really gonna move forward, we have to deal with race, we have to deal with neighborhoods, we have to deal with youth, and we have to deal with economic inclusion and opportunity. I think that Detroit is a bellwether city. Historian Heather Thompson. It's every city in some respects, and that's why 67 mattered. It's why it matters that we get it right, what happened. <clears throat> and it's why it matters that we look at Detroit carefully today. All right, so that's what I'm gonna do for a, a, an overview for the riots. But to understand the real events leading up to it, we have to understand that Detroit had been in this very same situation for a very long time. We're talking decades. In fact, it wasn't the first time that there were so-called race riots in Detroit. So, 1967 pretty much is when it all came to a head. And as they said in that video, there are still big portions of Detroit where these riots occurred that still have not recovered. Um, anyway, I'm going to give us a little bit of an overview, overview rather, of the 1943 riots, uh, which took place in Detroit, obviously, um, from the evening of June 20th through the early morning of June 22nd. It occurred during World War II um, in, in a period of dramatic population increase. Obviously, the automotive industry had brought hundreds of thousands of people at the least to the Detroit area. Um, and then that was continuing in World War II because we ramped up manufacturing to build things for the war. Workers came there to take those jobs. Um, Existing social tensions and housing shortage, shortages were exacerbated by racist feelings about the arrival of nearly uh, 400,000 migrants, both African-American and white Southerners, from the southeastern United States between 1941 and 1943. Looking for the economic opportunities that Detroit being a manufacturing center afforded them. Um, the new migrants competed for space and jobs, as well as against European immigrants and their descendants. The Detroit riots were one of five that summer. Now, remember, they just said there was riots in over 20 cities in 1967. Um, 1943 was uh, a first wave of that. Beaumont, Texas, Harlem, New York, Los Angeles, California at the Zoot Suit Riot, and Mobile, Alabama. The rioting in Detroit began among youths at Belle Isle Park on June 20th, 1943. The unrest moved into the city proper and was exacerbated by false rumors of racial attacks in both the black and white communities. It continued until June 22nd. It was suppressed after 6,000 federal troops were ordered into the city to restore peace. Sounds like fascism, doesn't it? Uh, a total of 34 people were killed, 25 of them black, and most at the hands of the white police force. That's an important piece of context in relation to the 1967 riots. <coughs> um, so 40, 
433, rather, people were wounded in the event, 75% of them black, and property valued at $2 million, which would be about $30 million in 2020 dollars, uh, was destroyed. Most of the riot took place in the black area of Paradise Valley, which was the poorest neighborhood of the city. So we're already seeing an intersection of race and class. Um, and I think that's that's crucial to what the population of Detroit has gone through, what they, how they're rebuilding from that. But that could be a piece on it all. <laughs> that could be a piece all on its own. Um, at the time, white commissions attributed the cause of the riot to black people and youths. But the NAACP claimed deeper causes, a short of, uh, shortage of affordable housing, discrimination and employment, lack of minority representation in the police, <clears throat> and uh, white police brutality. A late 20th century analysis of the rioters showed that the white rioters were younger and often unemployed, characteristics that the riot commissions had falsely attributed to blacks despite evidence directly in front of their faces. If working, the whites often held semi-skilled or skilled positions. Whites traveled long distances across the city to join the, the first stage of the riot near the bridge to Belal Park. And later some <clears throat> traveled in armed groups explicitly to attack the black neighborhood in Paradise Valley. The black participants were often older established city residents who in many cases had lived in the city for more than a decade. Uh, many were married working men and were defending their homes and neighborhoods against police and white rioters. They also looted and destroyed white owned property in their neighborhood. Um, so like, that is part of why Detroit is such a segregated city to this day. Many of the black families that live in Detroit have simply been stuck there due to a lack of, um, you know, transportation and a lack of funding to up and move. That shit ain't cheap, especially if you own your house, uh, which most of them have, you know, their families have owned those homes for generations. Um, so the KKK had established a substantial presence in Detroit in the 1920s, and the KKK became concentrated in the Midwestern cities rather than exclusively in the South. It was primarily anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish in this period, but it also supported white supremacy. The KKK contributed to Detroit's reputation for racial antagonism and there were violent incidences, incidents, <laughs> sorry, dating from 1915. Um, it's lesser known offshoot, Black Legion, was also active in the Detroit area. And in 1936 and 37, some 48 members were convicted of numerous murders and attempted murders, thus ending their run. Both organizations stood for white supremacy. Detroit was unique among northern cities by the 1940s for its exceptionally high percentage of southern-born residents, both black and white. In other words, a lot of this tension came with that wave of migration on both sides. Um, ultimately, I think it's the course of humanity trying to correct itself, these, these kind of contradictions in society. 
are going to lead to struggles. They're going to lead to confrontations. Um, yeah. Um, so the automotive industry during World War II converted to military production. High wages were offered, attracting large number of workers and their families from outside of Michigan. The new workers found little available housing and competition among ethnic groups was fierce for both jobs and housing. With Executive Order 8802, uh, FDR in 1941 had prohibited racial discrimination in the national defense industry. And uh, Roosevelt called upon all groups to support the war effort. The executive order was applied irregularly and blacks often were excluded from numerous industrial jobs, especially more skilled and supervisory uh, positions. And uh, obviously we, we, I've already touched on the great migration, uh, you know, the, the, the wave of people coming north from the south in 1915, or from 1915 to 1930. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of this tension came there with them. Um, it, there was there was tensions uh, on assembly lines, for example. In June 1943, Packard Motor Car Company finally promoted three blacks to work next to whites in the assembly lines in keeping with the anti-segregation policy required for the defense industry. In response, 25,000 whites walked off the job in a hate or a wildcat strike at Packard, effectively slowing down the critical war production. Although whites had long worked with blacks in the same plants, Many wanted control of certain jobs and did not want to work next to blacks. Harold Zeck remembers seeing a group of white women workers coming into the assembly line to convince the white men workers to walk out of work to protest black women using the white women's bathroom. Harold, if that's not a Karen ass move. I would have never thought Karen was from Detroit. Anyway. Um, and, and the protest ended when the men refused to leave work. Um, ultimately, altercations uh, between youths started June 20th, 1943. So right in that same time frame, they just said that was early June uh, at Packard auto company. So like, obviously the tension had been building was the point of telling that story. Um, on a warm Sunday evening on Belle Isle, uh, which is an island in the Detroit River off Detroit's mainland. And it's actually one of the first spots uh, in Detroit, or maybe even the first that was settled in, by the French. Um, in what is considered a communal disorder, youths fight intermittently throughout the, after the afternoon. The brawl eventually grew into a confrontation between groups of whites and blacks on the Long Belle Isle Bridge, crowded with more than a hundred thousand day trippers returning to the city from the park. From there, the riot spread into the city. Sailors joined fights against blacks. The riot escalated in the city after a false rumor spread that a mob of whites had thrown a black mother and her baby into the Detroit River. 
Blacks looted and destroyed uh, white property in their neighborhoods as retaliation. Whites overran Woodward to, Ver uh, I think it should say Vernon, but it says Veron, where they proceeded to tip over 20 cars that belonged to black families. The whites also started to loot stores while rioting. Historian Marilyn S. Johnson argues that this rumor reflected black male fears about historical white violence against black women and children. An equally false rumor that blacks had raped and murdered a white woman on the Belle Isle Bridge swept through the white neighborhoods and angry mobs of whites spilled onto Woodward Avenue near the Roxy Theater around 4 a.m., beating blacks as they were getting off streetcars on their way to work. They also went to the black neighborhood of Paradise Valley, one of the oldest and poorest neighborhoods in Detroit, attacking blacks who were trying to defend their homes. The clashes soon ex escalated to the points where Mobs of whites and blacks were assaulting one another, beating an uh, innocent motorist, which a common rumor that still goes around is that if you're white in certain parts of Detroit at night, you shouldn't stop at stoplights. Uh, and the police themselves actually helped push these rumors. Um, yeah. Pedestrians and streetcar passengers, burning cars, destroying store, uh, storefronts and looting businesses. Both sides were said to have encouraged others to join in the riots with fal false claims that one of their own had been attacked unjustly. Blacks were outnumbered by a large margin. Remember that the white community, which had better access to cars um, and other forms of transportation, uh, came from all across the city to pick a fight with the community that they were never a part of. Anyway, um, so, so the black community was outnumbered and suffered many more deaths, personal injuries and property damage. Out of the 34 people killed, 24 were black. Um, FDR invoked the Insurrection Act of 1807, ordered in federal troops, a total of 6,000 troops imposed a curfew, restored peace, and occupied the streets of Detroit. Over the course of three days of rioting, 34 people had been killed, 20, well, now it says 25, but these are citing different sources. So 24 or 25 black people were killed, of which 17 were killed by the police. Their forces were predominantly white. 13 deaths remain unsolved. So they were either by the police or unsolved. Wow. Nine deaths reported were white and out of the 1800 arrests made, 85% of them were black. Um, yeah, so The, the 1943 riots were essentially a precursor to the 1967 riots. And I lived in a poorer area of Detroit. Um, and, and I've heard stories firsthand from people that lived through the, the 67 riots. Um, I was not on the right side of town to, to really meet people that were involved in the 1943 riots plus you know obviously the the, the generation gap there um 
But, but the point is, though, is that the effects of these riots are still being uh, felt by these communities that we're going to be talking about here shortly today. These neighborhoods still have not recovered. These neighbor these neighborhoods were not given the same opportunities as other neighbors or as other neighborhoods, rather. Um, also, the 1967 riots caused a pretty big exodus of white people. Uh, which took all their tax base to the suburbs, and that's why places like Livonia are very white, and places like inner city Detroit are very not white. Um, that's why the inner city is run down, and the suburbs are not. Uh, you know, compare Novi and Detroit, it's night and day. Um, and a lot of that is the result of the 1967 riots. Um, so I have three sources for um, information on the 1967 riots. Um, I'm using history.com. Uh, it's an article literally titled 1967 Detroit Riots. The Wikipedia page, um, which I mean, the, the sources on that are pretty broad. Um, a lot of newspapers, a lot of um, doctorate things that were written for Princeton, Wayne State University, um, articles from the Detroit News, um, you know, as well as US Census figures. Um, and other historical articles. Um, I'm not really seeing anything listed in the references that is, um, you know, really questionable. Um, I'm, I might question the angle of some of these things, especially concerning uh, the Detroit news, things like that. but. As usual, I'm not going to read unsighted shit. We generally skip over something if, if, if it's not cited uh, when using Wikipedia as a source. Um, and then the other one is Britannica, which I feel like is a kind of vague um, overall thing. But we'll, we'll see if I even end up using that one realistically. But... Uh, the first thing I'm going to read from is the history.com article. The 1967 Detroit riots were among the most violent and destructive riots in U.S. history. By the time the bloodshed, burning, and looting ended, after five days, 43 people were dead, 342 injured. And uh, they, they say 1,400 buildings. Other sources have said anything between 1,000 and 2,000 plus. I cannot give you an accurate number of that. Um, some 7,000 National Guard and U.S. Army troops had been called into service. Race relations in 1960s America. Uh, actually, I, I want to interject here and say that this is not just necessarily about race. Race. 1967 was a year of uprising. Well, I should say the back half of 1967 and the front half of 1968 was a year of uprising. Um, but I don't want to get too far off topic with that. Just search May 68, 
Um, yeah, anyway. In the sweltering summer of 1967, Detroit's predominantly African-American neighborhood of Virginia Park was a simmering cauldron of racial tension. About 60,000 low-income residents were crammed into the neighborhood's 460 acres, living mostly in small subdivided apartments. The Detroit PD, which only had about 50 African-American officers at the time, was viewed accurately as a white occupying army. Actually, uh, to tie this into the Black Panther um, reading that we've been doing lately, um, you know, like I, it, it's obvious to me that this sentiment was very widely felt in the black community across the country. And that's one of the formational thoughts behind the Black Panther Party as a whole. Um, anyway. Accusations of racial profiling and police brutality were commonplace among Detroit's black residents. The only other whites in Virginia Park commuted in from the suburbs to run the businesses on 12th Street, then commuted home to affluent enclaves outside of Detroit. The interior, interior, what the fuck? The entire city was in a state of economic and social strife as the Motor City's famed auto, uh, automobile industry shed jobs and moved out of the city center, often into the suburbs. Freeways and suburban amenities beckoned middle-class residents away, which further gutted Detroit's vitality and left behind vacant storefronts, widespread unemployment, and impoverished despair. A similar scenario played out in metropolitan areas across America, where white flight reduced the tax base in formerly prosperous cities, causing urban blight, poverty, and racial discord. In mid-July 1967, the city of Newark, New Jersey, erupted in violence as Black residents battled police following the beating of a Black taxi driver, leaving 26 people dead. Um, so, I, I, again, I'm somewhat familiar with the 1967 Detroit riots, but there was, oh, hey, Trisha entered the waiting room. All right, well, we will circle back to that in a minute after Trisha joins us. You there? There you are. You're still muted. Yeah. Oh, there just, you go. Uh, kind of crazy looking right now because I just got out of the shower, but you know, it is what it is. Fair enough. Um, mm -hmm. I am going to day. send you a link. I'm actually going to pause the recording for a second.
How's everybody doing today? Doing all right over here. How about you? <laughs> oh man, not too bad, but uh, it's kind of been crazy the last couple days. Um, I, I don't know what all you had planned on talking about tonight, but the majority of what I'm planning on talking about has to do with Hurricane Ida. Same. The stuff that I've seen on that is just downright devastating. Yeah, to say the least. I mean, they were looking at 150 mile an hour sustained winds and this storm did not drop to a category three hurricane until over six hours after it made landfall. That's, that's wild. And I'm really hoping um, that I can find more um, mutual aid uh, groups to plug, but I did find an article, hi James, I did find an article about um, nine organizations that are on the ground in Louisiana that are mutual aid organizations, and we'll be discussing that when we get to it. Um, but the point is, is everybody keep the people of the Gulf Coast ultimately uh, in your thoughts. And if you're in the path of the remnants of Hurricane Ida, just remember that you're getting a small, very small taste of what the people in Louisiana are going through. And we're talking about flooding all the way to New Jersey. Like the radar I was showing right. uh, that I was watching earlier was literally showing rain bands of Ida still pulling moisture from the Gulf of Mexico when it's in Tennessee. It's pretty wild. It had the Mississippi River flowing in the wrong direction. That's fucking intense. Yeah. Hi, Calvin. Now they're saying that some of the people in Louisiana could be without power for more than three weeks. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, stored. they have to rebuild from the sounds of it. I don't know anything official yet, but from the sounds of it, um, it could be months in some areas. They have to rebuild such a large portion of their grid itself. It's mind blowing. Right. I also, some I also just realized that I changed the title. No, it still says 27th. That's funny. Hey, you guys, it's the 31st. I promise I know that. I just didn't change it in the title. <laughs> you got to change it on a slide, though. That helps. <laughs> At least yeah. it's got the right data up on there. Shit happens. <laughs> right. Man. Um, yeah, like there's a video I saw of a roof peeling right off of a building and then crashing into a power pole and breaking it in half. And there's. Yeah, there's well, there was reports during the storm that uh, the roof had blown off a hospital, which we're not able to evacuate. Um, they basically sheltered in place, um, and, and it wasn't actually the hospital. It was the hotel that was attached to the hospital, which lost its roof. So that was good to hear. There was also reports of a levee failing. Uh, the levee that failed was not actually part of the levee system. It was a levee built by a refinery. 
So it didn't cause the kind of drastic impact that, you know, the report of a levy breaking, it, it wasn't what you would think. Um, there were levies in the system that's been built after Katrina. There were levies that overtopped, but none of them failed. And that's probably why we're looking at a death toll of like four so far, rather than what we saw with Katrina. Right. I would say that Hurricane Ida definitely tested the $15 billion levy system. Um, and some of these photos, I have some stuff pulled up right now. I'm going to send you the links to these photos. Okay. So in the, in the meantime, I do have a video pulled up. Okay. Ida made Katrina look like a warm summer breeze. Yeah, I was not anticipating. This is craziness, what happened. Ida is wow. And that, just for frame of reference, had 12 four-foot rebars holding it into the ground. Picked it up, threw it around like it was a napkin. Flew from where she's standing. That reported 175 mile an hour gust. Picked that thing up, and again, I had 12 four-foot pieces of rebar securing it down. Picked it up, and you see impact point, impact point, impact point, roof thread. Boop, right over the trailer. Damnedest thing you ever saw. We have food, we have water, we're fine. You know, it was just, we're still alive. You know, we survived it. It was really bad. That was the first time I ever been in a storm this bad. It was kind of scary at times, uh, but yeah, we, we good. Everything's good. We're still alive. So that's the, that's the best thing right now. So we all sticking together. We all, you know, we're doing good right now. We're all right. We'll be okay. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out and we'll, we'll survive. We'll be okay. There's no power for hundreds of miles. Things are on fire. It's crazy here, man. See all the trees, water everywhere, roads are underwater, people are riding around in boats. Come from Florida, try to help out, see what we can do. So, I mean, I think that in terms of, well, obviously in terms of life, lives lost, um, I would say that Katrina was worse, at least at this point. But that's because the levy system at that time failed. This levy system right. held up. And it's still, I mean, you know, what good is a 10-foot wall gonna do against a 16-foot wall of water? It's gonna lessen the amount of water coming in, but it's not gonna stop it. Right. And, and I not mean- when I, it's taller than the levees. Right. Right. You know, but those levees were built to be overtopped and those levees were also built to stop the storm surge of a category three storm. So like that's that's why they were built to be overtopped. If a category four or a category five storm comes in and pushes the storm surge over the levees, the levees aren't going to fail. Whereas the way it was before, they got hit by a category three storm and the storm surge just wiped out the levees.
<laughs> James said math and bad weather both suck sometimes. You're right about that. Um, but I, I mean, these kind of storms are getting more common. Uh, okay, so in its history, Louisiana has been struck by a grand total of three category four hurricanes. Two of them were last year and this year. And one of them was in 1856. If that doesn't show that a, you know, one in uh, a 100 year storm can happen in back to back years, then obviously the likelihood is going up. Um, right, especially like, had that levee system not been updated and fixed, the, the ramifications of this storm hitting as strongly as it did right now would be far worse even than Katrina was. This is, a bigger storm. It stayed at level four for much longer than Katrina. Yeah. They're looking at around $8 billion in damage with a B, $80 billion. I was, I was reading that this, the electrical, well, okay, so remember that they're still looking at shit right now. So like that number is going to grow massively. And right. uh, in terms of the power grid alone, that could cost as much as $40 billion to rebuild the whole goddamn thing. Like, I mean, if it's as damaged as it could be, is what I'm saying. It could cost up to $40 billion to rebuild just the electrical grid. So, I mean, that $8 billion estimate is probably going to drastically go up over the next few weeks. Um, and I think that's going to be important. Remember, it's also been hot since Ida. Usually it's cool after a hurricane. It's been in the high 80s and very humid. They have no power. They don't even have fans. That's um, especially asked, when they sorry, can't even get gasoline right now. Even if they have generators, they can't even get any fucking gas to put in them, you know, to power right. anything. Right. Um, Calvin asked, was FEMA there? Um, or, or are they there yet? And uh, the short answer is yes. The long answer, of course, is far more complicated than that. Um, but Biden did mobilize 500 uh, FEMA personnel to start staging to go to the area before the hurricane even landed. So I will give him credit where it is due there. He handled it better than Bush handled Katrina. Um, that being said, is there enough supplies and resources there? No, absolutely not. There never is. Um, and in terms of who's in charge of FEMA right now, I have <laughs> I have no clue, um, but I am gonna show these these pictures. Um, it's it's pretty wild to see sheet metal just. That's a this is a this this aerial thing. I was watching. Uh, there's a feed from the ISS, and when there's a major hurricane like this, they usually have like literally a live feed. Um, and Hurricane Ida 
was the size of Florida. Like, and the rain bands alone had completely covered the coastal area there. Obviously, the rain bands aren't nearly as damaging as the eye wall. That's where those 150 mile an hour sustained winds were. But holy shit. Right. They are they are driving boats down the road. Do you still have to follow like traffic signs? Oh my god. <laughs> Stay to the right. Oh man. Pass on the left. I really feel for the healthcare workers too. I, uh, most of them have emergency backup systems. I will say that. Um, but like the staff had to shelter in place there too. It wasn't just the patients that couldn't evacuate. The staff is there. So like, sure, they probably still have power, but. They're stuck there. Yeah. And I mean, there's no way of communicating with anybody. Like, sure, they have power. They can charge their cell phones. But who are they going to call? Nobody else can charge their cell phones. And the fucking networks are down. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, see, and that's just the rain bands. The actual clouds over that are so much larger. Um, also, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later today, too. That was Hurricane Norma made landfall uh, a couple days ago as a Category 2 and kind of followed up the coast. Uh, and I will be looking at the remnants of that uh, today and tomorrow here in Phoenix, Arizona. Obviously, that's... Okay, so actually, I will talk about that right now because it's quick and I can get it out of the way and not have to circle back to it. Hurricane Nora is going to be hitting um, the valley here in Arizona. Actually, it's it's not very far away at this point. And there's flash flood warnings all across the valley um, with some areas looking at localized rainfall rates of two inches an hour. Doesn't sound a lot compared to what Ida was just dumping, but you get two inches of rain over the course of a day and you see pretty significant flooding. What's gonna happen with two inches an hour? How many fucking hours is it supposed to take for it to pass through? Um, over the course of tonight through tomorrow night. We are under flash flood watches until 5 a.m. Wednesday. Or 5 a.m. Thursday, sorry. Damn. Yeah. Dude. We're in a pretty high ground area. There is a, a park system uh, that runs parallel to the to the canal that's like a quarter of a mile away from me. And it, well, okay, so like it's a park when it's not flooded, but it's a flood control system. Right. So, I mean, here we're going to be fine. What I'm concerned about is low-lying areas. Like, I mean, you know, in the inner city. Right. Um, 
particularly low-income areas. They the the areas that were settled at the turn of the last century, not not the areas that were settled in the '60s and properly planned accordingly. Um, anyway, yeah, back to these pictures. I, I mean, the level of destruction that Ida brought upon the Gulf Coast is honestly just crazy. And we're looking at millions of people without power. Uh, 1.18 million in the New Orleans area alone. Um, James said, this is obviously about Biden. He said, good, they call him senile, but at least he tried to do something. <laughs> Fair. Uh, oh, goodness. How okay, are not... people evacuating affecting the hospital's COVID issues? Honestly, it's too soon to tell that. Most of these hospitals still don't have any means of communication. Um, yeah. But that is a that is a very good question. Uh, Calvin asked, "How is Don?" Um, it actually seems like he's been doing pretty well lately. Uh, I talked to him on the phone yesterday for about a half hour or so. He's been, you know, working on his house and uh, working out pretty much. We'll probably occasionally see him again once Trisha goes back up there. Which will be soon. I've still got a few things to handle down here, but I'm anticipating potentially heading back up there this weekend. Um, I'm sending you another link here with some aerial photos. Well, that used to be a good Holy shit. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like, the, there we go. That's what I was looking for. That's what, I was hoping this would be in this collection. That was taken from the International Space Station, and that motherfucker is bigger than Florida. That's insane. Yeah. Oh, hey, Natalie's here. Hello. Hello. Um, James said, ask Dean uh, about, about the COVID issues. Honestly, uh, I don't think that there's any way that his computer models can accurately predict that unless he knows how many people from what areas went to what areas and how they're going to travel back. Um, right. I, I don't think that there's really a way he could predict that, but it's not going to be good. Like, even if they're taking precautions at these shelters, which they're probably not because they're in crisis mode. But even if they're taking precautions at these shelters, as easily as this thing spreads, referring to Delta, obviously, as easy as it spreads, it's going to be very difficult to try to, to try to mitigate that. Right. <laughs> so you mean ask Dean later? 
Yes. <laughs> Once there's actually some data coming in, I'm sure that he could put that into his computer models and tell us something, but right now, right now, probably not. Um, there are relief crews uh, coming from power companies from over 30 states. Um, there are disaster relief funds. There are mutual aid groups on the ground. Um, and I, I guess all I can say is if you're able to go down there and help out, um, you know, I would, I would certainly encourage that. Uh, I sent you some aerial photos as well as an update from a few hours ago from Latoya Cantrell. Uh, as far as uh, updates on where they're at in recovery. Uh, um, I have one more thing. This is from, uh, did you actually send this or did I accidentally? Yeah, you did send this. The uh, group of manatees spotted in the backyard. Also, oh, there was a man who was, also there was a man who was presumed dead. One of the things that the officials have been warning about in Louisiana is gators. They are, they are very yeah. far inland at this point. And there was like a 70 year old man who was walking <laughs> through a flooded area and was attacked by an alligator today. He is presumed dead. Um, they haven't found him, but he is presumed dead. Holy um, shit. But in this uh, thing about the manatee, manatees, sorry, there's a video from flooded roads in Southern Alabama. So this is nowhere near the eye of the storm. This is simply from the rain bands. I almost forgot to share my screen before I took play. So yeah, I mean, just a you know a short little thing but like i said that's just a reminder uh you know that it's not just the winds at the eye wall that are that are concerning here it's also the rain bands they brought flooding to you know places a hundred and something miles away that's significant right um there's an update from an hour ago saying that the flooding threat is as far north as Ohio. Well, yeah, because right now Ida is in Tennessee. Like what was the center of the storm is in Tennessee and those rain bands, it's still sucking moisture off the Gulf of Mexico. Like the rain bands are consistently being fed more rain from the Gulf of Mexico and it's moving up with the rotation of the storm. Ida is still rotating over Tennessee. It's not a tropical storm anymore. I believe it's just a tropical depression at this point, but it is still rotating. Can you pull up the live radar on that? Yeah, I actually intended to have that pulled up, but I ended up searching something else in that window. So uh, give me just a second.
not AccuWeather. I hate AccuWeather. Because they do that like future cast radar shit and you can't just like view the, the actual damn radar without it. It's ridiculous. Um, one thing here I'm reading, uh, as Hurricane Ida headed into the Gulf of Mexico, a team of scientists was closely watching a giant swirling pool of warm water directly ahead of its path. That warm pool and eddy was a warning sign. It was around 125 miles across and gave Ida the power boost that, you know, in the span of less than 24 hours would turn it from a weak hurricane into a cat four. And just the photo of what they're describing here is intense to even look at and realize how much impact that had on the storm itself. It does look like Ida is finally tapering out, though. The rotation is definitely slower than it was earlier this afternoon, but there is still very clear rotation, and I can show you on the, the live radar. This is from 425 to 515, I think it was. Oh, to 525, sorry, my time. So this is the last hour, roughly. Okay. Um, but this this band, I'm glad to see, is no longer actually connected to the storm. Um, it broke apart over South Carolina about two hours ago, um, but it was still consistently being fed from the Gulf about two hours ago. I'm pointing at my screen with my hand like you can see me, but this band uh, was connected up here earlier and then it finally broke apart. So hopefully, you know, even though it is still moving with the rotation of the storm, it's no longer feeding the storm. Right. But that is a massive amount of rain. Oh. What was that? Right. Just saying, like, the fact that that finally broke apart will at least help decrease the intensity i mean you know um well yeah i mean it made landfall down and here and it's still rotating above tennessee right. well almost kentucky now because this was the backside of the eye wall that's where the 150 mile an hour winds were when it was down here it's still like you know rotating around that but it's finally breaking apart Sorry, I blooped out into the ether for a moment. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. My signal's kind of low. I gotcha. Um, but yeah, anyway, I just wanted to show the, the mass size. I wish that there was a way for me to pull this up where it's, uh, you know, like over the last three days.
Um, the same here, um, as far as these eddies go and why they contribute so much, it's because subtropical water has a different temperature and salinity than the common water in the Gulf. So the eddies are <laughs> James said, okay, I'm just going to say it. Instead of a bigger wall on the border, maybe a bigger hurricane wall for these people. Um, he also said, we have flash flood warnings here, meaning West Virginia. From it, I couldn't imagine being down there. And frankly, neither could I. Um, Natalie said, I don't want to think of what this is going to do to overloaded hospitals and their ICU departments in Louisiana all the way to Tennessee. Uh, we're bad before they were bad before Ida's landfall. Um, but yeah, I mean, just like James pointed out, we're, we're having flash flood warnings all the way to New Jersey, all the way to West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, yeah. Um, hold on. I wanted to bring up more video, though. Um, but I, oh, I mean let me do that I'll, I'll read the rest of it. oh yeah okay and before it, it cut me out right. um the the surface temperature of being 78 degrees or higher feeds the storms but it's not just at the surface of what you would visually think of as the surface we're talking four to five hundred feet deep of water that is 78 degrees or warmer. Yeah, or, or um, as high as 90 degrees I've seen from other sources, but yes, exactly. Right. Well, well this is seeing like that minimum of 78 degrees, it feeds hurricanes. Um, but also that description of it, it being four or 500 feet deep and having that much more salinity, um, it inhibits the mixing and cooling of those layers when they hit the common water that's cooler. Um, that right there, that factor of it being four to 500 foot deep of very hot water in the Gulf just fed this very intensely. Um, I think it said there was three different eddies in there um, feeding it. I remember right um yeah and, and i mean basically one of the one of the one of the sources i was keeping track on through this whole storm is a news organization specifically a meteorologist out of new orleans and he was talking about how you know like the, these i don't remember if he called them eddies or not but he was saying that they're like you know, normally in a very small localized area, but these these areas of, you know, surface uh, temps in excess of 90 degrees are not uncommon anymore. And, uh, you know, usually this will be, you know, the top 100 feet or so that's that much warmer, but now we're seeing it down hundreds of feet. And he was saying that it's going to be devastating for the Gulf Coast. We're going to see more and more and more storms like this. And I mean, you know, he's been he's been tracking hurricanes in the Gulf for like 20 years. Oh, 
he probably was going holy shit because of this one specifically having that heat all the way down to 480 feet of yeah. that eddie just feeding the fuck out of it like this this is very extreme and this is the stuff we're talking about when we're describing the global climate change it the intense heat this summer has fed all of this um Yeah. Um, and there's also that that same news station, it's a different meteorologist, but that same news station is already watching another potential formation in the tropics. Uh, remember that we're going into the active part of hurricane season now. Like this was the first major hurricane this year so far right this is just the beginning of hurricane season barely hell technically it's supposed to be starting tomorrow um i have a 10 minute video of search and rescue efforts <laughs> search and um, rescue efforts March. are intensifying in louisiana after hurricane ida made landfall category four storm over the weekend. More than one million customers across the state are without power. Officials say nearly 2,000 miles of power lines across the state are damaged, and it could take several weeks to repair those damages. The lack of power, of course, is causing concern for Louisiana residents as temperatures are expected to exceed one. I want to pause this to address James's comment. Uh, didn't they invest in things like that within the last five years? Actually, the last 16 years. Um, they invested almost $15 billion into the levee system alone, uh, as well as uh, pumping stations, better drainage, et cetera, et cetera. So they have invested hugely uh, in this infrastructure. So like, that's why we haven't seen thousands of deaths from flooding uh, like we saw with Hurricane Katrina, which was a smaller storm. The levees did their jobs. This was just that intensive a storm. Like, I, I don't think I can understate that. Um, the levee system did its job and there was still this level of damage. Do you have anything you wanna tack on that, Trisha? <laughs> no, just jacking off. Yeah, fair. 100 degrees Fahrenheit today. Ida made landfall off the coast of Louisiana Sunday. With temperatures nearing 100 degrees today. Let me let me rewind that and get that again. The power, of course, is causing concern for Louisiana residents as temperatures are expected to exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit today. Exceed. Ida made landfall off the coast exceed. of Louisiana. These people don't have air conditioning. They don't even have fans. Temperatures to exceed 100 degrees today. Sunday, packing winds of up to 150 miles per hour. The storm is being blamed for at least two deaths across the region, but that number is expected. I want to interject there too. Other sources, uh, the, the most recent state update that I read about an hour before we went live put the death toll at four. That is with the, the man attacked by an alligator being presumed dead. Um, 
four. Remember that by this point in Katrina, we had seen well over a thousand already. Um, that number Great. is expected to climb. Search and rescue efforts are still underway, but four, not over a thousand. We're, we're actually doing very well thus far. Um, but that's not to negate what these people are going through. They are living hell right now. ...to rise. In Mississippi, two people died when torrential rains caused a highway to collapse. CBS News' Michael George has more on the ongoing recovery efforts. Using boats and helicopters, rescuers are still searching for people stranded by Ida's floodwaters along Louisiana's Gulf Coast. The ceiling and every room caved in, and it was, it was unbelievable. Four feet of water just came rushing in. Cell phone video captured a hospital evacuation of about 100 patients. Inside of one of the transfer vehicles, they were stacked three rows high. Overall, the storm that made landfall as a Category 4 hurricane Sunday was a test of the region's flood defense system, fortified after Hurricane Katrina. For the most part, it held, but the region's power grid did not. This was a 400-foot-tall transmission. Okay, so that, I just want to interject right here. Okay, that is made of steel. That is steel. A 400-foot transmission tower. We're talking those extremely high-voltage, very tall steel transmission towers it, it looks like it got picked up like it was a toy like a, a thin aluminum toy and it was like picked up and twisted like that is steel tower after ida it's a pile of rubble it's one of the reasons power is out in the new orleans metro area supermarkets gas stations hospitals they're all trying to run on backup generators the storm knocked out more than 2,000 miles of transmission lines. Louisiana's governor says 25,000 utility workers are making repairs and more crews are on the way. But it could be weeks before power is restored. I can't tell you when the power is going to be restored. But what I can tell you is we're going to work hard every single day to deliver as much assistance as we possibly can can. 70-year-old Philophilus Charles says he weathered multiple hurricanes in this home built by his grandmother. They just start falling apart, blowing away on me. I ain't got a dry spot in the house. Ida changed that, and now he says he has no place to go. Michael George, CBS News, Bridge City, Louisiana. Joining us now is Rob Gaudet. He is the CEO of Crowd Relief, a citizen-led crowdsourcing-backed disaster relief program. He's also the founder and director of the Cajun Navy Foundation, a volunteer-based organization that helps. The Cajun Navy was on the ground in boats before FEMA. FEMA may have been deployed to staging areas prior to the arrival of the hurricane. The Cajun Navy is literally people who own boats in Louisiana and the surrounding areas. Um, I don't know much about this man as a person, but it seems like the organizations that he's leading um, are more efficient at least than the ones that the government runs. But look them up, you be the judge. To provide rescue and relief efforts during natural disasters. 
Rob, thanks so much for joining us. So you and the Cajun Navy were some of the first responders on the ground once Ida made landfall. Can you tell us uh, what you saw and what you're seeing there now? There's no water, there's no food. Um, people need to stay back and you know, you want to get you want to get back to your life, but it's going to be months. Um, what we're people are actually the EOC here is telling us they're having their own family go rent apartments in other cities. Bad it is. There's no. It's going to be a very long time before people are going to be able to have any semblance of normal here, and um, that's the biggest challenge that we have. Well, I'm so glad that we were able to hear you clearly for that portion of it. Yeah. I actually stood up and I'm pointing my phone at the tower. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, maybe that that helps because you really sort of painted a very clear picture of how dire the situation is on the ground. Like you said, no water, no electricity, but also very limited communication. Yeah, there there is no communication. Um, literally, no, no communication at all. Um, and what we're doing is providing services to the community that that are here um, and. We have handed out probably two or three pallets of water um, to a hundred bars. We had a went over a mile long. What you're going to be facing is on car line, gas, no food, no water. There's people don't need to come. Well, Rob, you've made that pretty clear that people need to uh, to stay away if they are out. But what about all those people who are stuck and stranded? Um, how can they get the word out if they need help? Yeah, you're going to have to get in your car and you can drive from our location. We are on the uh, Walmart parking lot on Martin Luther King in, in Homa, um, Martin Luther King Boulevard. And um, we, we call it and SAFE is an acronym for Swift Action Force, Swift Action Force Emerge Camp, um, Safe Camp. And we, we can provide food and water. Um, our supplies are limited right now until we can get our, our logistics chains going and getting, you know, the supplies here, which is happening, but it's slow. Um, we're, not, we're not able to service all of the vehicles that are waiting for help from us. Um, we're going to have to actually start walking our line here a minute and just telling people we're out of supplies. Um, and gas is precious, so you're waiting in this car line for 20, 30 minutes, and you get up here, and we're out. So, and there's a place. So, um, it's it's pretty it's pretty dire. Oh, this is a community of over a hundred thousand people. It is. This is a community of over a hundred thousand. Um, and the the hard part, this parish is off of the. It's kind of off the grid. Not not. Not to the point that there's no electricity, but it's not a seen area. It's it's a sister city to New Orleans, small, um, off of the um, radar for most people related to this disaster. And if I could put a call out, it would be for those um, people that, that that can make things happen regarding water. Truck, we need we need 18 wheelers full of water. Um, we need food. Um, we need the basic supplies. You know, personal hygiene like diapers, adult diapers. We're being Ask for a lot of diapers, um, and uh, if you can help move things this direction, um, we can take them uh, at the Walmart parking lot on uh, Martin Luther King in Homa, and then we can provide those. We're, you know, we can provide those uh, items to the uh, community members and to the other local nonprofits, the churches, and things like that. 
And, and Rob, are you all in touch with FEMA? We, we're not in touch with FEMA at this moment. Um, you know, the, um, we, we have made contact with the local EOC um, where we are right now. I think the governor's here um, in a meeting with uh, officials. But um, we, uh, we source our supplies through the general public. Um, we reach a lot of people through our social following, um, Facebook, and you can actually see live what we do while, when we have connections. Um, it's uh, a Cajun Navy Ground Force Facebook page. And we have a tremendous right. response that we get um, in these times through our social followings. And people respond, organizations and businesses respond. Um, we actually just partnered up with Macy's to um, they'll be raising money for our organization through all 120 of their they do that because of platforms amazing and obviously you have an incredible you know ground roots system and a lot of support but as you just said you're starting to run out of supplies so it sounds like you could use uh, you know an influx um, from the federal government where you are it sounds like even though you have so much support and you do have so many volunteers who are willing to help you know at a certain point you just you've got to have somebody delivering you the supplies correct yeah that's exactly right and it's only day two um by by tomorrow um we really think we will have some of the logistics supplies um running to this area um but they're they're definitely going to be limited and you know, the important thing is just for people to stay put and be safe and let the supplies that we have go to the people that are here. Um, systems are strained across the entire community. Police, um, fire, food, there's no, like, there's no electricity. There's still a lot of damage across roads. Um, homes are damaged. I mean, we had people sleeping in their cars in the community last night. A lot of families just sleeping in their cars because they can't sleep in their homes. Um, it, it rained pretty heavily last night, too. So it, what was that? Sorry, thank you. I was just going to ask how the weather's doing, and you answered part of that question. It rained, but we did hear that there were yeah, supposed to be some incredibly like high temperatures. Yeah, it's over 90 degrees here right now, and it's hot. It's just hot. It's a muggy and hot, and we're used to that weather, but we're, we're used to it in air condition. One of the things I've always said is it's very you, you can't live in these conditions for very long um, without climate control, and there is no climate control because there's no electricity. Well, Rob Gaday, I am so glad that we were able to talk to you and finally get a connection through because you've just given us all some very, very important information, especially important to those people who are on the ground near you um, and are, like we said, are having trouble getting supplies, getting communication, getting their message out. Um, so it's, it's good to know that people just need to stay where they are right now if they can. Right, Rob? That's the main message. Don't, yes, don't. Uh, yeah. Don't leave your home at the moment if, if you can help it, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what we're hearing from uh, the officials, and we're just repeating what they're saying, just stay where you are um, and until, you know, you get the, the green light to return. But um, that's what the officials are saying, and we're, we're just repeating what they're saying, just stay where you are. Right. All right. Well, Rob, good day. Thank you so much for all that you're doing down there, and we really hope you get that you know, second wave of supplies in soon because it sounds like the need is great. So yes, uh, it really is and appreciate you guys putting the word out. Thank you so much. So yeah, um, the Cajun Navy though was on the ground uh, shortly after the eye wall passed over them. 
it was still raining and they were already working on mobilizing, setting up this base camp he was talking about. I, again, I don't know uh, a whole lot about the organization, but I do know that it is a nonprofit. That's why they're able to accept funds from the federal government or a 501c3. Um, and they're completely volunteer driven. Um, so that's just one of many organizations that's on the ground in the Louisiana area that is that is responding more efficiently than the federal government, which it's been said by the right and left for a long time that FEMA is basically bleeding supplies. For the amount of money that we spend on relief efforts from FEMA, they're very inefficient at delivering it. That's not to say that we should disband it. That's saying that we need to fix it. I'm not trying to say that right. FEMA doesn't help people, but oftentimes they help people too little and too late. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, it's hard to see a lot of this video, honestly. Um, but I mean, that being said, I've been watching it for two days at this point. And uh, I, I'm very thankful that the death toll is so low, but hundreds of thousands of people have lost everything, to put it mildly. Um, so if you were, you know, able to go down there and physically uh, help with the efforts, I would recommend that. Of course, take proper COVID precautions, wear a fucking mask. If you're not vaccinated, you're probably not the best candidate to do it. Um, but the point is, is that the people of Louisiana, the people of New Orleans and the surrounding areas, the people of Huma, the people of Grand Isle need help and they need supplies. It literally is a matter of life or death. I mean, hundred degree temperatures, extreme humidity, um, the amount of wind damage is incredible. And of course, you know, the, the, the flooding. It's one of those things of if you are physically not capable of going down there to actually help, there are places that you can send donations to, to at least help be able to get people food, water, necessities to survive through this. Let me pull up. I had um, I sent an article earlier to the group chat um, that had nine organizations that have mobilized on the ground in Louisiana that are looking for support. Um, so give me a second to pull that up. Loading. There we go. Um, this list was compiled by self.com, um, which I mean seems to be kind of like a self help website. Mostly they focus on fitness, food, health, culture, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, I, th <laughs> I think that they legit just want to help. Um, but they put together this list. Um, 
which actually I will go ahead and post in the comments, which I have to pull up the feed on my computer versus on my phone. So give me a second there, but I will post the link to this article uh, in the comments. And I hope that you can all take the time to copy it and share it. Um, as for the organizations, uh, the Greater New Orleans Foundation has a four-star rating on Charity Navigator as one of two organizations that the city of New Orleans specifically directs people to for donations. The foundation operates programs aimed, aimed at distributing resources to local uh, ph philanthropic efforts, including via its Disaster Response and Restoration Fund. Uh, they have a link to donate. United Way, I'm not much of a fan of, I guess. It seems like they're about as efficient as FEMA. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's, it's the Southeast Louisiana chapter of the United Way, an international nonprofit, um, is focused on providing for those in need and alleviating the effects of poverty. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the organization provided emergency food and shelter, distributed emergency crisis grants, uh, which that I do like, uh, to those in the hard hit hospitality industry and provided monetary and supply donations for hurricane relief. AmeriCares is a global nonprofit organization with four, four stars from Charity Navigator. This special, uh, specializes in providing health aid and relief. That includes providing medication, emergency health clinics, and healthcare workers, including those focused on mental health in areas recovering from nat uh, natural disasters. Um, I, I think that that is a good one to, uh, to, to donate to. Um, you know, people are not going to be able to go to the pharmacy for a very long time. Um, you know, and a lot of health clinics and uh, whatnot were severely damaged in the hurricane. I think that's a very important one. Uh, the Cajun Navy Relief, um, a term coined after Hurricane Katrina, which I mean, it was organized after Hurricane Katrina, is an improvised group of volunteers and boats who help uh, those in flooded areas. Cajun Navy Relief, which I mean, this, this hurricane, they have ground forces, that's new, they are growing. Um, Cajun Navy Relief is a nonprofit organization made up of volunteers in New Orleans who bring direct assistance to, to those in need. You can donate supplies or money, um, but they, they listed supplies first, saying such as canned food, water, and toiletries, which is exactly what the founder asked for. He didn't ask for a single dollar. I'm pointing that out. He asked for supplies. Um, but they have a link to donate. Um, Imagine Waterworks is a local queer native Creole and trans-led organization focused on water and climate justice, disaster preparation, and mutual aid. It leads the, the Mutual Aid Response Network, um, which I was gonna talk about until I read through this list earlier today, because this list um, talks about the organizations that make up the network. <laughs> um, but anyway, Imagine Waterworks leads the Mutual Aid Response Network during disaster events like Ida. The network is currently taking donations to support relief and recovery after the hurricane and throughout the rest of the hurricane season. Um, again, they have a link. 
Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is a nationwide yet grassroots nonprofit, uh, read Mutual Aid Group, um, comprising a large network of activists, street medics, and organizers who are each embedded in their local communities. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief aims to provide solidarity-based relief, such as opening community wellness clinics after disasters, connecting those impacted to loved ones through Wi-Fi and emergency radios, distributing supplies, as well as cleaning debris and repairing homes. The organization put together a list of needed items and drop-off locations. There's a link to that and a link to their donation page. Um, so let me actually, uh, now that I have this loaded, let me drop this link in the comments. Oh, shit. There we go. Boom. Uh, Natalie said, sounds like a great group of volunteers. And then she said, if I'm lagging behind or repeating what anyone has already said, it's my bad connection and I can't hear as the video is in and out. I've been closing out and back in and it helps only for a few minutes. You're totally fine, Natalie. Um, Honestly, in this case, I would rather somebody repeat <laughs> than it not get said. Um, anyway, uh, Project Hope is a three-star charity, according to Charity Navigator. It provides global disaster relief in the form of experts and volunteers, medical support in the distribution of medical supplies and other necessities. The organization's emergency, uh, emergency responders are providing assistance in Louisiana especially as the state's hospitals are already at capacity due to COVID-19, and many of them were not able to evacuate. Um, another Gulf is Possible is a collaborative grassroots organization led by women of color. They are collecting donations of supplies and money in the wake of Hurricane Ida. The donations will be given directly to black, indigenous, and brown frontline folks affected, uh, impacted rather by the hurricane and to individual uh, families, the organization says. Another gulf is also, or also lists other local organizations. There's a link to the list and could, uh, that could use funds too, as well as a donation link. And I am not gonna plug the Red Cross. We've given you eight good <laughs> organizations to donate to. Well, seven good and one okay. That's plenty. Yeah. Especially since most of them are grassroots. Uh, just to recap on those. Um, <coughs> um, blah, 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 blah. The Cajun Navy. Imagine Waterworks. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. Project Hope is not solidarity-based, but it's it's medical supplies. Uh, another Gulf is possible. And of course, the United Way. Um, and America, uh, AmeriCares is another nonprofit focused on healthcare. So once again, that list is the Greater New Orleans Foundation um, is one of the organizations that the city directs people to. United Way, which is the other. 
AmeriCares is about healthcare. Cajun Navy Relief, Imagine Waterworks, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, um, Another Gulf is Possible, and Project Hope, again, medical supplies. So um, there are plenty of ways that, that you can help out financially if you can't make it there in person. Um, again, if you were in a, in a fairly close area and you have the means to get there and help, by all means, do it. Take gas, take food, take clothing. And definitely take water. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all I've got. Give me just a second to get resituated here. I've got an article up on the environmental effects that are already hitting because of this. I haven't seen a whole lot on that, so I'm glad that you found that. Um, I was very worried about the oil infrastructure that's there. I know that I know just from videos that there is at least one refinery that's been damaged. So um, I'm sure that the environmental impacts are great and certainly not fully known yet. Yeah, the Department of Environmental Quality is inspecting a bunch of industrial sites here. Um, information about potential environmental threats caused by Hurricane Ida have been slow in coming, but initial reports to the Coast Guard's National Response Center and the State Department of Environmental Quality confirmed that there were releases of crude oil, fuel oils, and a variety of chemicals in numerous locations in southeastern Louisiana on the day before and the day of the storm. Uh, the information that's available is not complete or comprehensive, consisting of initial call-in or emailed reports by company officials or others to the two agencies. They include releases of different chemicals by refineries and chemical plants when flares were extinguished by Ida's winds, as well as the possible release of sewage and wastewater in numerous locations in Jefferson Parish when the water or when the power was lost. Um, knocking out 95% of the parish pump stations that move waste through the underground pipes. Um, the agency has already begun more detailed inspections of all facilities within Ida's path to identify concerns with that information likely to be made public over the next few weeks. On Tuesday, the National Response Center had reports on 11 incidents that occurred in Louisiana on Saturday the day before Ida hit through the end of Sunday. Uh, the DEQ listed 35 incidents that had been reported to them on Sunday and Monday, some of which were also reported to the Coast Guard. Um, the stuff reported to the Coast Guard included the release of an unknown amount of hydrogen at the Shell Norco facility during a unit's shutdown in advance of Ida and an ammonia was released from a process safety valve at Cornerstone Chemical in Wagaman. The valve was restored to stop leak. Um, on Sunday, the Coast Guard reported several incidents involving ships. There was a vessel slipped from its moorings at Golden Meadow that was adrift with a tugboat connected to it. Neither were leaking oil though. Um, 
a stray vessel struck another vessel in its berth at Daniel's shipyard in Morgan City. And a sheen was noticed in the water nearby. So that probably had a leak there. Um, in Port Fortune, where Ida made landfall at 11.55 a.m., a floating dry dock at Bollinger Fortune broke free and breached the hull of another vessel, possibly breaching a tank aboard the vessel and resulting in the discharge of fuel oil. Uh, the breach occurred above the waterline of the hit vessel. Um, there was also a number of releases at refineries, petrochemical plants, and pipelines, including the ETC Texas pipelines reported the release of two barrels of condensate onto the ground near the intersection of LA-151 and Virgil Road in Minden, Louisiana, the result of a corroded pipe. The Koch, or Koch, I don't know, nitrogen in Hanville reported the release of 58 pounds of ammonia through a flare during the powder out, power outage. Um, the release was halted. Plant officials said they were looking to restore power at the plant. No information about the amount of nitrogen released was available. CF Industries and Donaldsonville reported that the pilots of the flares of two storage tanks were extinguished while control valves were partially open, allowing the release of ammonia. Um, they said a crew was unable to secure the release. Phillips 66 Pipeline LLC reported two leaks on, on two separate pipelines, RV26 and RV32, due to conditions during Ida, resulting in the release of propylene and isobutane into the atmosphere. It's unknown if there is waterway impact at this time, the company reported. Uh, the releases were near Paradise in Louisiana, uh, 3127 in St. Charles Parish. Uh, Mosaic Fertilizer reported ammonia vapor released outside its St. James facility after a flare blew out. Uh, Shintec, Louisiana and Plaquemine reported the release of an unknown amount of ethylene dichloride from a storage tank due to, quote, power, power inconsistency during the hurricane. Um, let's see. Uh, Jefferson Parish Sewer Department reported wastewater and rainwater re were released due to the lift stations failing. Um, Waterford 3 in Hanville reported an unusual event due to the loss of power running to the station from offsite. There was no release of radiation or other materials resulting from that power loss. Um, Chalmette Refining reported the release of sulfur dioxide from a flare due to a loss of power. The Dow, Dow Union Carbide Plant in Hanville reported flaring of products and byproducts due to loss of power, but they didn't list which ones. ExxonMobil in Baton Rouge reported releases of nitrogen oxide, nitrate, sulfur dioxide, and hydrogen sulfide due to an upset caused by Ida. Uh, that would be nice if they would clarify what they mean by an upset. Um, <laughs> Hudson Marine slash Orion 
reported that a vessel ran aground in Magnolia Landing in St. James Parish. No release was reported. Energy Transfer Partners slash Lone Star NGL in Geismar reported a loss of power that caused its flare to produce black smoke. What was actually released is unknown. Marquette Transportation on the Mississippi River near Laplace reported fuel coming from the cargo vessel Golden L. Kirby Inland Marine on the river in St. Charles Parish reported the release of Pygus and the discharge from a tank of the barge MV Kirby. Um, Cornerstone Chemical reported the release of sulfur dioxide and sulfur trioxide. Uh, the report said molten sulfur tank may have been struck by lightning or other ignition source. Phillips 66 Alliance Refinery in Belchase reported a release of mainly stormwater after the refinery was flooded when a levee was overtopped. Officials hope to open the floodgates to reduce water within the levied area to, to lessen the flooding impact. The Valero St. Charles Refinery in Norco reported damage to a gasoline tank and release of gasoline. Entergy's Little Gypsy plant in Mons reported an unknown amount of asbestos blown off the ground. That sounds healthy. Um, ECM Maritime slash Hokoku Marine reported that one of its vessels in the Mississippi River ran aground in St. Charles Parish, and there was a potential for release of fuel oil. Marathon Pipeline St. James Tank Farm reported Crude oil discharged onto an above ground storage tank and then under the ground in, into surface water. Hudson Marine reported that tugs broke free from the bonnet car anchorage at Norco and struck a vessel. There's the potential there for a release. Tennessee Gas Pipeline reported that a nipple on a pipeline near Golden Meadow was damaged, released, releasing natural gas. Uh, Gallagher Marine slash safety sailing ship management reported that the bulk cargo ship LT Ocean Star was aground in the Mississippi River in St. Charles Parish, and there was a potential for the release of oil. The Coast Guard reported that there was an unidentified barge sunk in the Mississippi River in St. Charles Parish, posing the threat of release of an unknown amount of oil. Clean Gulf reported oil sheen in the Gulf of Mexico a few miles off Port Fortune from an unknown source. Um, Bell Pipeline reported damage to piping at a pipeline booster facility near Golden Meadow that was leaking crude oil. And that appears to be the bottom of that list there. So, I mean, all of this is just a big fucking mess for the wildlife to have to contend with now well and the people of course <clears throat> and, well, well yeah uh hey you should check the, the the chat in zoom i copied a couple of comments people were asking you questions oh right on all right give me a second to keep those here <laughs> uh that was Sarah Jane. She is a mix. Um, her mom is Siberian Husky and her dad was Pitbull, Akita, and German Shepherd. So uh, she's a cute mix, but she's she's my butt nugget. She's always right here. 
she's like a level 50 clinger. Um, <laughs> man, that's funny. She's she's cool. She's my little homie. She and her mom are snuggled up to my butt now, right next to me, as always. I miss Doom. Oh, she just lifted her head and looked over here like, huh? <laughs> Doom. Her ear twitched is all this time. <laughs> Whatever, Doom. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Anyway, while we're just sitting here, I'm going to take a minute to plug a little bit of what we got coming up. Tomorrow, we have a piece on the Detroit riots of 1967. Um, which the intro, I, I'm going to talk about the Detroit riots of 1943 because it's important in understanding what happened, what happened and why in 1967. Um, so that'll be tomorrow. Thursday, we start Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice for our Black Panther series on Thursdays. Monday, we'll have Anarchism and Other Essays Part 2. Um, and then September 7th, which is a week from today, our current event stream is going to be a future stream. <laughs> it wasn't as funny that oh, yeah. time, but no, um, <laughs> the awkwardness was though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> fair. Anyway, uh, we will be having the Star Trek communist on. We're going to be talking about, you guessed it. Star Trek and communism. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so if you are a Star Trek fan, or if you're not a Star Trek fan, but you're a communist, or if you're both, um, I think it'll be a pretty entertaining episode. We're going to be talking about the the parallels between Vietnam and the original series. We're going to be talking about the more leftist uh, undertones that Trek has had for five decades now. <laughs> Emily said, wow, Rob, your jokes tonight are dot, 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 something. <laughs> Uh, Natalie said, we're going full nerd. And yes, that's exactly it. We're going full nerd. Um, yes. But I, I mean, like, I've thought about, like, the leftist politics of Star Trek before, but I've never directly equated it to communism until I started following him on Twitter. And now I can't um, see that. <laughs> uh, it's one of those things that I noticed the socialist tendencies years ago and would point out like dude we could be living in a star trek world if we started i don't know giving a shit about people's quality of life being met and you know making use of our technology to get us there so that we can spend our time to focus on things like i don't know fucking improving society maybe stepping outside of this planet and exploring and so far we've managed to just have a whole bunch of people working at Amazon subsidize a fucking billionaire blasting off for 11 minutes. But, you know, why are we socializing Jeff Bezos? Amen to that. But I want to know. <laughs> James said he's DJ Rob, not comedian Rob. Jeez. True. 
Just saying. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not a comedian. I'm not that funny. You do have your funny moments, though. Well, you say that because you're, 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 you know, you get my dry humor. A lot of people don't. This is true. I was raised on very dry humor. It's one of those things that I, I understand fully. It's how my dad operates. Half the time you won't know if he's being a smart ass or not. He could be joking with you or totally just, you know, fucking roasting you with a straight look on his face. You'll never know if he really hates you or is just enjoying messing with you. Right. Um, Sometimes both. <laughs> so Emily said, I'm funnier. <laughs> All right, comedian Emily, get in here. <laughs> um, Natalie said, my mom loved the original track. Which exactly are you referring to? And uh, well, let's see. Let's start from the top. The original series, the next generation, the next generation movies, Voyager, uh, uh, Deep Space DS9. Nine. Yep. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of Enterprise. We're going to be talking about the growing pains of trying to leave our solar system for the first time, things like that. Um, Voyager is going to have a lot to do with ethics. Um, yeah, for sure. Next Generation, you know, the, the movies for Next Generation kind of really detail what their economic system is like, that they no longer pursue wealth, so on and so forth. Um, yep. And then Discovery uh, in the in the well, I don't know if it is the most recent series season now. I don't know if uh, the next season has debuted or not. I should check into that. But uh, at the at the end of the last season of Discovery, um, there was a very powerful capitalist who was basically trying to convince what remained of Starfleet in this era. Um, to do business with her to help themselves and they straight up refused uh, unless she was held accountable for her exploitation and uh, unopposed rule of millions so right they're like wait a fucking minute capitalist you have crimes to answer for answer for can't even talk but yeah yeah. Speaks volumes. Oh, and Lower Decks, because it's about the lower-ranking officers in Starfleet. I'm yet to see the Lower Decks. Oh, dude, it's from the creator that. of Rick and Morty, and it took me a few episodes to, like, get that it was actually, like, Trek canon, right? Because it's a different, totally different approach to Star Trek, but it's good. I'm gonna have to check that out. I'm I gotta watch that some point in the next week before we do this. Oh episode. yeah. Yeah, he's been tweeting about lower decks a lot, so you're gonna have to catch up on that. Yeah. I'll I'll search for that when I get back in HDFY after we're done here. If they don't have it, I didn't didn't Emily and I grant you access to our Paramount Plus account? I don't know. I don't think so. But if you want to. I'm in the accepting mood. <laughs> Maybe it was Sterling. <laughs> I don't know. It was somebody in the podcast admin chat way back that wanted to watch Discovery. I thought it was you, but it could have been Sterling. Um, I think the Discovery is on HDFY. Matter of fact, I can just pull it up right now and look and see if 
the lower decks. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, there's there's a lot to talk about that we can tie to leftist politics in general, or more specifically in the case of the Star Trek communist, uh, you know, communism in general. Um, and um, yeah, there's there's a lot of source material to go off of. So like trying to do this in one piece is going to be really hard, honestly. True. That's what I was thinking. Cause I mean, we could really do some deep dives on every series here. Yeah. And yes, they do have it on HDFY. <laughs> yes. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. It's on there. All right. I'm fitting that. You got to catch up on discovery still too, though. Um, I've watched everything that was released so far on Discovery, oh. but while we're talking about it, I will look it up and see if another season has been released since the last of it that I watched. Um, um Okay, I only saw seasons one and two, and season three is out now, so I'm going to catch up on that one, too. Season three, I think, is the, the one that I was referring to, I think. Then I wonder why it's not showing as being watched, because I know I've seen that part with the capitalist chick that they... Yeah, why do I not remember her name? I need to uh, go back and rewatch some stuff myself. And let me see, I'm looking at the description. Okay, yeah, I have seen season three. I'm also waiting for season two of Picard. I think I'm just happy to see, you know, Jean-Luc Picard on the bridge of a starship, really. Right, I love him. Um, Patrick Stewart's the shit. I mean, um, I... The undertones in that are pretty significant, too. Uh, there was an attack on uh, a shipyard on Mars by a bunch of artificial life forms, or androids, as they're known in that uh, <laughs> universe. And uh, they straight up banned artificial life forms, or synthetics, as they were calling them in that area, or era. And... Um, well, I mean, he had fought in a courtroom to prove that Lieutenant Commander Data was, you know, in fact, a sentient being uh, of his own free will. And when when Starfleet tried to take him so they could disassemble and study him, um, you know, Picard fought against that in a courtroom and won. And then he resigned from Starfleet when they banned synthetic life forms because he saw it as oppression Rightly so. So, I mean, essentially, they created an, uh, an apartheid state against androids. Um, and then by the end of the season, um, Picard himself ends up becoming an android. But I can't tell you how or why that happened. I mean, I could, but that's too off topic, I guess, is what I'm getting at. But the, the, the point is, though, is that even in that show, um, which I didn't expect a whole lot out in terms of social commentary like that, uh, but it runs deep. 
Anywho's it. Um, is there anything else that you can think of coming up that we want to plug? And do we really have anything to talk about? Because I know my attention's pretty much been solely focused on Ida. Honestly, that's the only news I've been keeping up to date on in the you know past few days since we did the last stream because that's the biggest impact on the country right now. I know there's still some stuff going on in Afghanistan, but I don't know precisely what. Um, I mean, if you want, we can take a moment to run a search and see what we can find out as far as updates there. But my eyes have mostly been focused on Ida. Uh, I know that we officially completed our withdrawal from Afghanistan today, and I know that the Taliban took over the Kabul airport literally minutes after the last C-17 full of American service members departed. But that was to be expected at this point. <coughs> and it didn't matter who was in the White House when it happened. It was going to happen either way. Right. People love to forget this deal was actually made by Trump before he left office. Natalie asked, is there a particular Star Trek movie that would be good to find the connections to anti-capitalism slash socialism? Uh, well, Star Trek First Contact talks a lot yes. about uh, why their economic system changed, which was World War III. And it talks a little bit about what their economic system was, uh, what the driving force was. I would recommend Star Trek First Contact. Um, Star Trek Insurrection also has a lot uh, to offer in terms of like an anti-imperialist kind of standpoint. So yeah, those I think would be yeah. the two. I highly recommend First Contact. That's one of my favorite of the Star Trek movies. Same. Uh, Vicky just sent, I don't know if she's watching, but I know that she knows that we're live. She just sent an article from Market Watch. Um, the headline is Social Security to become unable to pay full benefits sooner than previously estimated. Great. Awesome. It's going to be 2034 rather than 2035. Um, but I, I, I am actually glad she sent this because I just want to point out the Social Security would have, would have always been fully solvent if we wouldn't have put a cap on it, first of all. Um, and if we hadn't allowed borrowing from it, which was never supposed to be a thing. I was going to word it as mismanagement of funds, but yes, exactly. Yeah, siphoning. Um, how, what would they call this in a business context? Um drawing a blank on the word there's legal charge for it too uh basically where you're stealing from what you're considering oh embezzlement petty cash. yes embezzlement thank you it's one of those brain fart moments but yep embezzlement yeah um so that's only eight years away so that is um quite an important topic but unfortunately i don't think that any of us could be surprised about that at this point um the 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 stealing of funds from social security and the cap 
that was instituted in the Reagan era, if I remember correctly. Um, I think it was their plan for it to become insolvent because, you know, it's a socialist benefit or whatever the fuck. Right. Uh, Can't have anything with even the word social in there. Can't have stuff that's pro-society. Right. And Don't you know, I, you're supposed to only be pro-billionaire. Fuck yeah, you. Sure. Fuck all of you of the 99% of the rest of the population. You're only supposed to be rooting for the already wealthy. What's wrong with you? Sarcasm. Case that was lost. I highly doubt that's lost on anybody who's here right now, but you know, you never know. There's probably a right winger out there somewhere who will come across this someday and be like, aha! Anyway, I digress. It's sad and sickening how much of our entire financial system is like perpetually being built on to continue to siphon more money up to the top as if how they were already exploiting wasn't exploiting hard enough. And they were like, guys, we got to take it to another level. Yeah. Let's steal social security now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I really don't got anything else for tonight. Um, but of course, I, I want to say one more time that our thoughts uh, go out to the people that have been in the path of Hurricane Ida. I mean, here we are a full two days and change, almost two and a half days, really, into since Ida's made landfall and she's still rotating. That's crazy. Yeah. Dude the fact that this is impacted or you know as it continues will will impact about a third or more of the fucking country this is insane um something i saw before closing out that window was also flood warnings coming for even massachusetts from ida it's it's wild. It really is. Yeah. Like, how the fuck? Um, All these things, with, you know, super hot weather, the Gulf heating up way too fucking much and fucking up its own normal mixing of waters that keeps it relatively cool. This, this is all contributing to monstrous fucking storms. This yeah. shit's going to keep getting until we fix our own shit and stop causing excessive fucking heat in our atmosphere. Looking at you, military industrial complex with the biggest footprint on the planet when it comes to carbon. Yeah. Um... The point is, though, that this uh, this event is a reminder, not only in hurricane-prone areas, but this this event, Ida, is a reminder <laughs> that we need to have mutual aid networks already ready to go that are able to support strikes, sustain general strikes, natural disasters, 
<clears throat> especially natural disasters, fires, flooding, uh, winds, it doesn't matter. It's all happening more and more and more and more, and it's gonna continue to. We need to have these networks in place and ready to go before these things happen. That's why Cajun Relief, the Cajun Navy, was on the ground before the storm was over because they formed because of the effects of Katrina. So this time they were ready. But what if we can just be ready before something happens that kills thousands of people? What if we're just right. ready? Right. And actually have funds set aside to handle natural disasters, other funds set aside to handle covering workers going on strike, regardless of what union you're in or whatever your situation at work is, of being able to show some fucking solidarity there you know and i'm i'm just going to take this moment to say this too that in this you know this isn't just calling upon our comrades on the left you know what libertarians who want to talk about voluntarism but nine times out of ten are looking at the next person to be the one to volunteer i'm calling on you to dig into your pockets real deep too and actually put your money where your mouth is and start helping too you want to say the community can respond better than the federal government? Well, ultimately, I guess libertarians left us are saying the same thing. What she's saying is fucking be part of the pro or be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Yep. Yep. If you really believe in voluntarism, do it. Take some action. Join us in this when it comes to mutual aid, because this is precisely what needs to happen for people to actually survive things like this. This is what needs to happen for people to be able to actually have that freedom to stand up against corrupt employers too, when it comes to, you know, having strike funds set up. Okay, I'm pretty sure anybody who's not one of the 1% can get behind the fact that we all deserve to get more for the work we're doing. Um, there's no reason for any other person to be able to exploit the surplus value of your labor. We need mutual aid. We need it in place like fucking yesterday. Amen to that. Um, far larger number than what we have so far. Because if we had more people coming together with these things, then we would be able to have these things funded before an emergency happens. Um. Yeah, so I guess one more time just to recap um, the pinned comment in the live Facebook stream, is, which I will also put in the show notes for uh, those of you listening in the future on podcast platforms. That self.com article is a list of nine organizations, about half of which are solidarity based mutual aid organizations, grassroots organizations. Okay. <laughs> It'll be in the show notes on the podcast platforms. Uh, if you 
by any stretch of the imagination are able to donate, I encourage you to do so. Um, if you're able to physically go there and help, I encourage you to do so. Uh, preferably if you're vaccinated and willing to wear a mask. But the point is um, coming together as a community to respond to events like this is critical. Um, I just wanted to recap what's coming up. Tomorrow we have a piece on the Detroit riots of 1967 in which I also kind of talk about the 1943 riots because they led up to the 1967 riots. Uh, Thursday, we have part one of Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice. Um, that's the next series in our uh, Black Panther Party uh, material. And uh, then Monday, we will have part two of Anarchism and Other Essays. And then next Tuesday, we will be having the Star Trek Communist on as a guest. If you have, if you aren't familiar with him, go to Twitter, twit Twitter. <laughs> go to Twitter. Rob needs coffee. Jesus. <laughs> um, go to Twitter and search for at Boomer Niner. Um, you'll see a little That's bit of what he's about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, <clears throat> I'm really looking forward to that episode. Um, point is, we'll be here. We're back to our four days a week. We have not accomplished getting two weeks out yet. Things have been crazy. We're trying. <laughs> Indeed. Um, that being said, we are releasing things uh, besides the live streams, obviously, early to patrons. Uh, we've kind of failed at that this week. There's been a whole bunch of stuff going on, but that, that's also why we had less streams last week uh, and postponed our current event stream and all that jazz. So this week we're trying to do what we did last week and get ahead. Um, so yeah, um, if you want to subscribe to our Patreon so you can get these access to these streams earlier, that's going to be patreon.com slash for we are many. Um, I will be, well, one of us will be in the future writing an article about Hurricane Ida, uh, you know, what led to it, why we can expect more of it, and how to fucking help. Um, we will be releasing an article with all of that information uh, sometime in this next week. I can't promise it's going to be tomorrow, but sometime in this coming week, we're going to have that up. Um, Yeah, other than that, though, see you guys tomorrow night for the Detroit Riots piece. And um, hopefully we have some good news. Next, well, not next week, the week after. Uh, once again, thank you all for joining us and see you again tomorrow. Good night.